Let's see, do we have any kids in the room? You guys are so polite. Um, now, you're going to have to help me because we had a ton of kids earlier at three. So um, when I say, do we have any kids in the room, you need to make some noise, okay? Like lots of it. Here we go. Do we have any kids in the room? Wow, we do. They're hidden, but they're out there. I'm going to ask you some questions that the adults probably know the answer to, but your challenge is if I ask you questions, you need to shout out the answer to me faster than the grown-ups, okay? Can you do that? Only one of you? Come on. Can you do that? There we go. That's what I want to hear. All right, to get us where we're heading and uh, to what we're going to talk about tonight, let me just, I, I got to tell you a little story. So, um, a while ago, a few years ago, I turned 40. Now, I know you can't believe that. You're like, you? I can't. Just kidding. Um, I turned 40, and I was actually a little bit grumpy about it. Have you noticed, kids, have you noticed how you just love the next birthday, and you look forward to the next birthday? And so it's like, you know, turning 10 or 6 or, you know, 10, you're double digits, or um, 13, you're a teenager, you know, 16, you get to drive, hopefully, and, uh, you know, 18 or 21, all those, like, cool milestones, right? And then you get up to a little bit older, and it's kind of like, meh, you're not so excited anymore when your birthday comes. And so, kids, just enjoy the time. Don't rush it, you know, just enjoy being a kid, because it, it, it goes by fast, and then you'll be like me. Um, so anyway, so I was turning 30 or 40, excuse me, and uh, we did the whole church Saturday night, Sunday morning thing, preached, and then I went home, and I was pretty tired, and my wife had wanted to throw me a birthday party because 40's kind of a big deal, and I'm like, nah, I don't really want a birthday party. I just, you know, don't want to make a big deal about it. And so I went home and got into my comfy, nasty sweats, you know, and like laid down on the couch and... and uh, which just kind of fell asleep, was taking a nap, and honestly, a little bit mopey, feeling a little sorry for myself that I was turning 40, and, you know, I was there on my couch all by myself, uh, even though that's what I told my wife to do. And uh, so in the middle of this, as I'm sort of laying there half asleep, my wife comes in and says, uh, you may want to get up and get out of those sweats. And my best friend, who I've known since, since we were two, he walks through the house, he walks into the house carrying a big old cooler, which is a good sign. <laughs> he walks in, and, uh, and he said, man, you want to get changed? And so they threw me a big old party. And my wife said, there's a bunch of people coming over, and a bunch of people came over. Thankfully, she didn't surprise me. She gave me time to get out of my sweats. I was <laughs> thankful for that. And you know what? It was awesome. And I was just in that moment, I experienced so much joy and just all these people, and, and it was just a wonderful moment. And I had experienced just... I was a lot happier than my mopey, sad self had been just an hour or so earlier, right? And here's the cool thing about this is, while I was sad and moping on the couch, behind the scenes, behind the scenes, there were so many things going on that were being done for my benefit, for my good, for my joy. I mean, think about it. The text, the Facebook, private Facebook invitations, and, you know, the shopping for the cooler guys, right? And uh, I couldn't see any of it at the time. As I'm laying there on the couch, in the silence, moping, I couldn't see any of it. But behind the scenes, there was an incredible amount of things that were being done for my joy, and most of you here today know the Christmas story, but many of you may not know much about the time that led up to the first Christmas. 
the years, the behind the scenes of the years that led up to the first Christmas. And here's, you know, we can read and sum up the Christmas story in one sentence, really. And it's found at the beginning of Matthew. And quoting the prophet Isaiah, who uh, predicted the coming of Jesus about 700 years before he came, here's how Matthew summarizes the first Christmas. He says this, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, kids, help us out, which means what? God with us. Isn't that cool? That, that there will be a baby coming, and that baby will be called God with us. And so this verse is found on the very first page of Matthew. And Matthew, if for those of you who don't know, and I know like lots of people have apps and not many of you carry paper, paper Bibles anymore, um, but Matthew is uh, the very first page of the New Testament, right there, Matthew. And that's where you find this verse, right in, in Matthew. And just to, just to let you know, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus, four preserved accounts of the life of Jesus. They were ancient texts and they were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and then by um, one of the, the accounts of the Christmas story, the kind of the most detailed comes from Luke, and he was a scholar and a physician who carefully investigated um, and spoke to all the eyewitnesses and talked to people, and then he recorded it and recorded an account of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, and he passed it on. Now, these texts um, became bound together with a bunch of other um, letters that were written by the early apostles. And then sometime later, they were all bound together into what we have here, which is the Bible. And all four of the writers of the Gospels speak about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but only the first two really give us any details about the first Christmas. And so what you probably did know is that the Bible has two sections. The Old Testament, which were the Hebrew scriptures that had been preserved, and then the New Testament. And there's only one little page separate, separating them. One little page that separates Matthew from Malachi. And Malachi was called one of the minor prophets, not because he was unimportant, but because he wrote a really short little letter, only four chapters. And there's only one page that separates these the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Testament, right? And so here's the thing that you may not know. In between, that one page represents 400 years. 400 years. When Malachi writes the very last sentence of his little letter, he writes this amazing promise of a great prophet who's going to come before and prepare the way for the coming of the great Messiah, which so many of the prophets in the Old Testament wrote about. And then as Matthew is writing on the scroll and he completes the last line of this little page of text, um, the curtain draws, uh, almost like a play, a scene in a play. You know, the curtain comes down and, and the curtain draws to a close on the Old Testament. And the prophetic voice of God that had been speaking, a good section of this Old Testament, a good section of it is prophets that are speaking from God, speaking the voice of God to the people. And the prophetic voice of God, the curtain closes and the prophetic voice of God goes silent for 400 years. For 400 years. No prophets of God. No more scriptures being written. 
In fact, one of the other prophets named Amos prophesies this. He calls this, he prophesies a time of a famine for the word of God, that there'd be a time when there's actually a famine for the word of God where people would, would long for it like they long for food and water. 400 years of waiting in silence, wondering when or if God would keep his promises. When are you ever going to keep your promises, God? The, the promised Messiah was nowhere to seen. Instead of the promised restoration of the nation of Israel, like the king of Israel, the nation was ruled over by a succession of cruel foreign empires and cruel powers. There was one little cool bright spot, a Hanukkah miracle. But very soon after that, they were all under the thumb of a foreign power again. And this one was the most powerful foreign power of them all. And yet in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this turmoil and this kind of desperate situation, there were no prophets of God encouraging them. No voice of God speaking to the nation. No scripture being written. In fact, Malachi, like right, right before that last verse, at the very start of his little four-page four or five-page book of the Bible, would have been written on a scroll at the very start of that. He, uh, he says this, it's the Lord, perhaps preparing them for this time. God says this, he, this is the voice of God in, in the very second verse of Malachi 1. He says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. And the cool thing about this verse is it's not, the tense isn't the same as it is in English. So I have loved you. Actually, the tense could mean past, present, and future. So the idea here is I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. I've loved you in the past, I love you right now, and I'm going to love you in the future. I know you may not feel it right now because the circumstances aren't so good, but this is true. I love you. But come on, let's be honest. 400 years is a long time, isn't it? 400 years... Um, Somebody told me uh, right after the, the first service, 400 years ago, I think next year, 400 years exactly is when the Mayflower first landed. Crazy, huh? Barely colonies in, in, in America. I mean, think about that. And they don't have text, um, you know, cell phones, messenger, where you can reach out and talk to people all over the world. Just today, I'm getting text message updates from our church planners in Myanmar that are out going into these little villages, you know, Real time, they didn't have any of that. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine living like that? You're totally isolated, totally cut off, and 400 years go by. I don't know how many great, 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 great granddaddies that is, but it's, it's a few. It's quite a few. Some of you know, you're like genealogy nerds. You're like, oh yeah, George Washington, my great, great, whatever. Right? But it's a long time. 400 years, and, and by this time, they begin to wonder. They really began to doubt, does he really love us? I know he said he does, but does he really? I mean, many of you start doubting your friends when they ghost you for a day, right? Young people, you're texting, you shoot them over a text, and all of a sudden, like, a couple hours go by, you're like, oh, I wonder why they haven't written back. A day goes by, and you're like, oh, no, they don't love me anymore, for all you older people in the room, that means when people ignore you, texting back, okay, ghosting. Now you can sound cool to your grandkids. <laughs> but you know, that's the way we feel, isn't it? 
Now imagine 400 years of silence. 400 years. And you know why this is an important conversation for you and me here today? It's because you've probably had a season in your life where you felt like this. Maybe this is what you feel like today. That you feel like God is silent. Like I just keep praying and asking him to help me understand this situation and it just feels like radio silence on the other end. I, like just one way, like my words just fall out the end of my mouth. Or, you know, I keep asking him to fix this thing and it's just not happening. Or it seems like God is never gonna answer my prayer. You have any prayers that felt like it took 400 years for God to answer? You got a prayer and, and it's just something you keep praying for and praying for and you've got, you know people who it's like so silly, they pray for the most silly things and then they're like, and God answered, right? There was no one in line at Starbucks and I was late and I slid right in there and got my latte. <laughs> You're like, seriously? Seriously? I'm praying about real stuff here, Right? seems like God's never going to answer my prayer. Maybe you felt like that. And maybe that has caused you, like the people during this period of time, to wonder. I wonder if God really loves me. I know the song, Jesus loves me. Yes, I know. But I I wonder if if he really loves me. Loves me. I wonder if he's really there. I wonder if he really cares. And if you're here today and maybe you've struggled or are struggling with one of those things, um, I think that maybe God has you here today for a reason. I think maybe he wants you to know that even though you don't understand or know why you're going through what you're going through, even though you wonder where he's at, he is actually very actively moving behind the scenes for your good and for your joy, ultimately. And today is an invitation to re-engage with him Not just today, not just for Christmas, but beyond Christmas. And so what I want to do in the next few minutes is to tell you the story behind the story of Christmas and what was happening during that 400 silent years when the people were wondering where God was. And so in order to understand this, there are three major historical occurrences or three major historical events you need to understand. Now, how many of you liked history class? Wow, more than at three. Okay, it must be something about the four o'clock. That's great. So we're going to have a lot of fun here. And my, my, my kids always complain about some of the history stuff, you know, because my wife's really into it. And so they'll mention one thing, and she'll be like, oh, that was like, I don't know, ancient Sumeria. And they're like, no, mom, no, right? Uh, so if that's you, young people, and, and you're in the room, hang with me. I'll try to make this quick and uh, hopefully a little bit interesting. Um, but here's what's cool about this. If you're, if you're skeptical maybe of the claims of Jesus or maybe you had a professor who really made you doubt the claims of Jesus, here's, here's the cool thing about these historical events is even your professor would agree that these definitely happened during this time frame. And the cool thing is even your professor, um, all reputable scholars all agree that Jesus was an actual historical person who actually died on a Roman cross, okay? So that's just a, a little by the way. And so these are historical facts. And here, here's what you need to know. Here's, here's what was happening. Here's what began to happen during this 400 years of silence. The first thing is there was a major shift 
and world powers. You had Babylon as sort of the big kid on the block, and Persia came in, and Persia took over. And then something interesting happened. Um, In the year 360 BC, there was a great leader that arose in modern-day Greece. His name was Philip of Macedon. And the reason he's so important um, isn't just because of him, but it's specifically because of his son. And let's see if anyone in the room under 16 knows who his son was. I'll give you a hint. It starts with A. Alexander. Ding, ding, ding on the fourth row. I don't have candy to throw like Jason does at youth group. I'm sorry. Very good. Yeah, Alexander. And you know about him and his tag on his name, Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great. And the world has never seen someone, had, had never seen someone like this. He was just an incredible military strategist, an incredible leader. The world had never seen anything like him. He conquered Persia. And then it began this unprecedented string of military victories all the way across the, uh, the known Western world. He went all the way to India. He conquered the world. And then at the age of 33, he died. Now, he said something really interesting uh, that's been quoted and misquoted, but the, the gist of it is this, that before he died, Alexander wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Does anybody remember that from history class? There were no more worlds to conquer. And I think this is a really good little side bunny trail because if you're here, maybe you're a little bit like me, you're, you're kind of type A, um, you have the tendency to to place your, the way you feel about yourself based on what you're accomplishing in life or the level of status or, or whatever the thing is for you. That If you're kind of like that, this is a good thing to pay attention to because the guy who conquered and did more than you and I will ever dream of doing, he got to the end of it all and went, yep, I conquered it all, and now what? It's like the dog chasing the bumper. When you get the bumper, now you got a bumper. And isn't chasing success and chasing fortune and chasing that status that comes from the next accomplishment a lot like that in life? Maybe you felt that. Maybe that's what you feel right now. You're coming to the end of one year already. You're gearing up for the next year, thinking about how you're going to slay it in the next year. And yet, in the back of your mind, there's this thing going, man, that's never brought that fulfillment yet. I wonder if this year will be any different. I wonder if this year is going to be the year. And the truth is, no matter how high you go, no matter how far you go, there's something that is empty. There's a hole inside that conquering and success just can't fill. Now, here's the reason why Alexander is so important to the story of the silent years. And the the first thing is this. Before Alexander died, um, he made this common declaration throughout his whole empire that everyone within the known Western world would learn and speak a common language. In order to better rule his empire and and in order to spread Greek culture around the world, which he felt was the, the most sophisticated, best culture in the world, they would all speak a common language. And anybody know what that language is? Uh, sorry. It was Greek. And now one for the Bible nerds. Does anybody know what the specific variety of Greek was? Koine Greek. Yes. Ancient Greek. Koine Greek. 
And he decreed. And so from that, people all over the known civilized world began to learn Koine Greek and began to learn to read and write in Koine Greek. And it became the common trade language. I mean, you think English is common. I've traveled all over the world. English isn't nearly as common around the world as Greek in, in this day, in the civilized world. It became the language that everyone knew and everyone would speak. And here's why this is so important. Does anybody know what the original language that the, the text in the New Testament were written in? What language? Koine Greek. Koine Greek. And see, several hundred years later, after Alexander did this, this was the way the world was. And because of that, the writers of the New Testament had the ability to take now in a common language and share the gospel or the good news of Jesus, the message of Jesus, all over to people that spoke it and understood it. And what's even more, not just they spoke it or understood it, they were able to document the accounts of Jesus' life and see them passed down and preserved incredibly accurately. There's a, there's a science called textual criticism. And the documents, the gospels of Jesus, the four accounts of Jesus' life are better attested than any other historical document of the time. It's just overwhelming. Compare it to like Homer's Odyssey where there's one or two ancient texts, hundreds of ancient texts with incredibly small variations. And that, that was because Alexander spread a common language. And here's the thing to ponder about Alexander's decision to spread a common language. Do you think that maybe it's possible that it wasn't really Alexander's idea? Do you think maybe it's possible that God planted that idea in his heart and mind? Do you think maybe it's possible, like the Old Testament prophets say, that God directs the heart of the king? just like he directed King Cyrus far before the time and prophesied about King Cyrus and King Cyrus ends up sending exiles back to Israel at exactly the right time, 70 years after they were taken out. Do you think it's possible? I think it's very likely. In fact, I think this was what God is doing. Now, there's two other things that you got to know about because a couple hundred years go by and kids, we're almost done with the history lesson, okay? You like history? All right, we're almost done. I'll, I'll make this quick. A couple hundred years pass and another world power rises. And how many know what that world empire is? Rome, I hear it. Rome. All the men in the crowd. Rome. There, it was, it, the world had never seen anything like Rome. It was the toughest, meanest, baddest empire up to that time. Huge, massive. It stretches all over the known civilized Western world. It's just phenomenal. But here's, here's why Rome is so important to this story. is because they created something called Roman peace. And now again, kids, there's a word for that. You learned this in history. Maybe older kids or college. Roman peace or Pax Romana. Somebody's correcting me. Shout it out. Thank you. Very good. Pax Romana, thank you, guys. And this allowed people to travel more securely. I mean, 
up to before this time, the world is a very violent place. But after the Roman Empire takes over, uh, they created a Roman military peace so that on the edges of the empire where they were still conquering lands, yeah, it was violent. But inside of the empire, empire it was, there was unprecedented security such as it never existed in the world before. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the third thing they created was something else. That was Roman roads. Roman roads. They created a vast paved system of highways, the Roman roads. I've walked on some of those roads. Um, they, they created 50,000 miles of roads. Have anybody heard the statement, all roads lead to Rome? It's not true anymore. I took one. I went to Wyoming. I'm like, where am I? But it was true then. All roads led back to Rome, right? But it's hard to overestimate what Roman roads did as the very first early followers of Jesus, his apostles, poured out, um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they went to the corners of this empire, to the little nooks and crannies all over the, the known civilized world, carrying the message of the gospel. And one of the primary ways they did it was on these new and improved Roman highways, and so it's very hard to overestimate the, the significance of these three things when it comes to understanding what God was doing in that 400 years of silence. A common language, Roman peace, and Roman roads. God had been active behind the scenes. Has, has anybody ever been to a play? And you know, like uh, the act one goes, and then what happens at the end of it? The curtain comes down, Right? And then you get up and you go get popcorn, which is my favorite part because I'm not a big theater guy. Um, I just hang out in the lobby while the rest of the family goes in to finish the show. Uh, but no, then you go back in, right? And you sit down. And then what happens? The curtain goes up and the stage is set completely differently, right? It's a whole different setting on the stage. And here's the thing. As the curtain came down and you all went out to get popcorn, what was going on behind the scenes? A bunch of people were scrambling behind the scenes to make something happen, right? To completely change the setting of the stage. And the point of this is in these 400 years where it seemed like God wasn't active, where they wondered where is God and why isn't he speaking? God was very active behind the scenes, setting and resetting the world stage so that exactly the right time his son could come to this world and the world would be at a place where it was positioned for the message of the good news to explode out into the world. And here's the thing. Without these three things, without these three things, I think it's highly unlikely that you and I would be sitting here knowing and worshiping Jesus, celebrating his birth, 2,000 years later in a little corner of western Colorado. It's just so hard to imagine. But these things, the common language, the Roman peace, and the Roman roads, they paved the way for that. So, 400 years after Malachi pens the last sentence, his prophecy of a coming prophet who we know as John the Baptist, he puts down his pen. And in the midst of the silence, just as God had been moving all along, 
to set the stage for fulfilling his promises, he again moved on the heart of another world leader. He moved on the heart, just like I think he, he moved on the heart of Cyrus to send them back to Israel, Alexander to institute a common language. He now moved on the heart of another world leader. And you're reminded of his name every year. Otherwise, you would have forgotten it as a dusty memory from history class, like a lot of these other things, right? But you're reminded of this guy's name every year, not because of what he accomplished, and he was the greatest man in the world or the most accomplished man in the world at the time, but because he's a footnote in the greatest news ever told. And Luke 2, 1 says this, in those days, Caesar Augustus, you've heard of him, haven't you? Every year you hear his story, but it's not his story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, this is so cool because God, again, is working behind the scenes and he moves on the heart of Caesar, the most powerful person in the world, to issue a census. And what does that census make happen? Well, the Old Testament prophets had prophesied that the Messiah would have to be born in where? Bethlehem. And because of this, Mary and Joseph find themselves in the town where there's no room in the inn. Verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him as was expecting a child. The fulfillment of Isaiah 700 years earlier. The virgin will be with child. You'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you what? Good news that will cause what? Great joy for who? All the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And the arrival of the promised Messiah on the very first Christmas, who they had waited for for hundreds of years, happened on a not-so-silent night, actually, because after this, a whole choir of angels showed up and they partied. It was a good time. His arrival was heralded as good news of great joy for all people. That whereas before you wondered if you could have relationship and peace with God, this is why it's good news of great joy for all people. Because this is the way, by embracing Jesus, you have relationship, you put your trust in him, and you can know, I'm okay with God. That is good news, not just for a people, not just for the people of Israel, but for all people for all people. And for those of us who have struggled in, in life wondering where God is and if he hears, 
The good news is God was working behind the scenes the whole time to bring this good news, to bring this life. And for those who have heard that God loves you, but you really wonder, the good news is God loved you so much that he sent his son. The good news is that even though he seems silent, he was working the whole time behind the scenes to bring ultimate and eternal joy to all who would receive him. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way as he reflects on the first Christmas and he recognizes, wow, this is like the beginning of the second act. The curtain lifted and it's incredible. He recognizes that, that God had been working to set the stage for hundreds of years behind the scene. And here's what he says. He says, but when the set time had fully come, at just the right time, God sent his son. At just the right time, God moved in a moment of history as he had been preparing to do for hundreds of years. And the curtain went up and, and the Savior arrived. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. He's born to be with us, like us. Emmanuel, God in a body. Born under the law, he was accountable. He was tempted in every way we are and yet without sin to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, God's purpose was not just global, it was personal. It was individual. In this beautiful language of re redeeming or buying back someone who was condemned to slavery or death, and actually not just buying them back, but adopting them as a cherished member of the family. That God loved you so much, he wanted you as part of his family. And Paul says, at just the right time, God moved. At just the right time, God demonstrated his great love for us. That he loved you so much that he did love you, he does love you, and he will love you. He loved you so much, he sent his only son. Whoever believes and trusts in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And as I invite the band back up here to close us today, let me just ask you, why are you here? And let me just suggest that maybe you're here for a reason. And I'm not just saying like, you know, to make your wife, get your wife off your back, you know, placate your mother-in-law. That's okay too. Good on you. I'm not just saying that. But what if, what if, maybe God has you here to connect with you. What if God has you here at this time to engage with you, not just today, but starting today and then for the rest of your life? You know, many in Israel actually ended up missing the time of Jesus coming, they ended up crucifying him. And it's possible to be so wrapped up in life and so busy and so caught up that you can miss what God wants to do, miss the way he wants to connect with you. He's inviting you to connect with him in a deeper way. Let me just ask, what if this coming year can be the time when your life really changes, when Jesus moves in your situation? What if, what if tonight, your commitment, maybe, maybe you need to respond to him for the first time, but maybe your commitment is really, you know what? I'm gonna keep investigating, okay? Maybe it's to pray a prayer and say, okay, God, I'm gonna ask you and invite you to actually connect with me. 
What if this, over this next year, you could start out on a path of greater relationship with him? You know, there's common things in humanity that we all struggle with, right? Anxiety, stress, depression, loss, loneliness, lack of fulfillment, that emptiness inside. And as cliche as it sounds, I really do believe, and here at Life Community, we really believe that Jesus is the answer. And we'd love to have you join us. We'd love to have you join us this coming weekend as we launch a new series, speaking into some of these issues. And not that everything in your life is all of a sudden magically going to become rosy. You've, been, you've had those promises before. Not, it doesn't work like that, right? But here's what I believe. As you embrace Jesus and begin to learn to walk with him, and as he begins to change you from the inside out, it will make a radical difference in your life. And so today, as we close, would you just stand? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I just want to give you the opportunity to respond to him. And maybe the way you respond to him today is by just saying, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take a step towards you. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to come back for this series. Maybe some in the room, though, you want to express your trust for him in a deeper way, maybe for the first time. And if that's you, you can do that simply by praying a prayer like this. The words aren't critical, but just praying a prayer like this after me, and I invite you to do that. Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, that you died and rose again. I ask you just to forgive me and give me new life. I want to live my life for you. Meet me in the place of my need. Lord, for all my other friends, I just ask that you would bless them, that you would let them know you in this moment and experience you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one last song here. It's a favorite of probably a lot of us in the room. And I just encourage you, don't just sing it as a Christmas carol. Let's sing it as a song of worship to the Lord.